The New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 5, reading from verse 1. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they'd done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. You may have gathered that I've had uh, quite a long association with Te Akapuaho, our Maori Synod of the other Presbyterian Church in New Zealand. My earliest contact was in my first parish uh, about 1972 when they asked the ministers and elders of our small Gisborne Presbytery to come over to Ohopi for a visit to Tamongarongo Marae. That's when I first discovered that you could sleep there in the meeting house when people were talking. And we went there with our baby daughter, as did other ministers with their families. Kids, quite a number, were there. And, of course, the hui went on all weekend. Uh, and I remember what it was like to wake up early in the morning with the sun streaming in the window. There's only one window by the door. Actually, come to think of it, when they rebuilt it, they put windows along the far end as well. But there's no windows along the side or anywhere like that. And the sun was just streaming in uh, very early in the morning. And I was lying there, and all around me were the sounds of people sleeping. Some of them were making quite loud sounds. <laughs> in fact, on one occasion when I was at a hui there, I had one person lying facing me on this side and one person lying facing me on this side. Both were very loud snorers <laughs> and I didn't have earplugs. <laughs> anyway, uh, those are the sorts of things that can happen when you go there. Much later, after many visits as part of my work for the National Church, I was with Diane in 1992 when, as the church's director of communication, she presented them with gift towards partnership. A set of five books like this, 
they are illustrated and they outline the work of the Synod and uh, she was the one who actually produced them. At the time, a set was gifted to every parish. I'd be quite interested to know whether um, Johnsonville's set is still extant or whether, like many places, it's sort of quietly disappeared into a back cupboard somewhere. Anyway, that was back in 1992. It was a project initiated two years before when the General Assembly, on the 150th anniversary of the signing of the treaty, renewed its own covenant to honour the treaty in its life and work. That same year, I attended the opening of Te Kahano o Te Aroha, which is a combined church and marae set in the village of Randwick, Petone. These tall carving pictures uh, are one of 12 pairs lining the Whareneui at Tamongaronga. It's quite impressive to see the 12 sets all the way down the side. And of course, when you're on one side, you're looking at the one on the other side. So having them the same is quite, quite useful. And the Tokutuku picture at the back here of the Last Supper is in the sanctuary at Te Kākano. Oh, we've gone one too far, I think. Yeah, that's it there. So if you're ever over in Randwick, uh, I'm sure they would give you a welcome if you wanted to visit. But to take up the story in our New Testament reading, after calling Simon and Andrew and James and John to follow him so he could teach them to catch people with the message of the gospel, Jesus goes on to preach in the synagogue at Capernaum and then on and on to the neighbouring towns and villages. As Jesus says, to proclaim the message there too. So that's what they came to do, to catch people, to win people over, to get people on board with the good news the truth about God's love and God's purpose of peace and well-being for all humanity. And a full 25 years later, in his letter to the infant church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul identifies the same purpose for his life. I've become all things to all people that by any means I may win some. I do it all for the sake of the good news, so I may share in its blessing. What blessing? Well, the blessings of living in the messianic age, when instead of living in fear of a punishing transactional God, Jesus proclaims a different type of God, one of grace, one who loves and seeks shalom, the peace and well-being of all people. Luke reports that Jesus extends himself, goes out so more people can learn that the time for the reign of this God is right now, even if Caesar thinks he's God. Jesus walks and talks and restores people to health and to community by sharing and acting out this message of good news. And Paul's the same, blending in, using the language and culture of the empire around him. As he says, becoming a slave to all, a Jew to Jews, a Gentile to Gentiles, 
and even revealing his weakness to the weak. Why? Well, in his view, to remove any and every stumbling block which might interfere with people hearing the good news that God loves everyone. And that changes everything. God loves even the Romans, for heaven's sake, those oppressors who use the power and the might to expand their empire all the way to London, confiscating land as they marched through any part of the world they wanted, just taking it for their own use and enrichment, because they could. Of course, the Caesars proclaimed there could always be peace, just as long as the conquered people remembered their place in the scheme of things, as long as they didn't get above their station, as long as they didn't demand equality with Roman citizens. Anyway, equality was, well, unthinkable, not even in their vocabulary, certainly not in their religion, not even between men, let alone between men and women, or between slaves and their masters. And to complicate things further for Jesus and his message, Jewish religious authorities had long since forgotten, in practice anyway, the original insight of their faith, that all people are made in the image of God, that long since ignored the call of their prophets to care for the stranger and the widow and the orphan. Now neighbours outside the faith are labelled unclean and foreigners untouchable. So in my interpretation anyway, Jesus and then Paul and others extend themselves to bring the message of God's love for everyone to everyone on all sides of the political and religious equation. Jesus enters the forbidden territory of people labelled sinners or unclean. He dives right into the midst of those who've been marginalised by their community. Harvesting corn as he goes through the field. Healing the unclean, even on the Sabbath. Jesus tears down legal restrictions and rejects definitions of who is clean and unclean. And Paul, inspired by what he's learned of Jesus' teaching, becomes a subversive chameleon among the diverse cultures of the empire so that no people group would miss out on the good news. For the early Christian, this meant that everything they did would require discernment. Every decision about how they were to live had to pass muster in the light of this good news of justice and peace and well-being for everyone. Everything they do has to contribute to a world where all will know they are loved. Jesus' followers have to discern what words and actions are pro-love, if you like, and what are anti-love. And they're constantly using the good news of this gospel to critique political, religious, and economic powers in every context they're in. Both the Roman occupiers and the occupied Jews needed to wake up their ideas and change their minds, repent of their anti-love attitudes so that this loving reign could extend to the ends of the earth. But it didn't last, did it? I wonder why. Maybe because the human lust for power is the antithesis of love. 
and the equality love brings. In a couple of centuries, Constantine, now the reigning Caesar of the sprawling Roman Empire, would convene the Christian Council of Nicaea. And not long after, the Caesar Thesidosius would declare Christianity to be the state religion of the Roman Empire. And after that, well, popes and kings would play who's on top, who's the most powerful for a thousand years. This lust for power reached a crescendo in 1452 when Pope Nicholas V wrote these words, invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens, pagans, and other enemies of Christ. Put them in perpetual slavery and take all their possessions and property. This formal proclamation, this papal bull and others written afterward up to 1493 collectively became known as what we now call the Doctrine of Discovery. The Doctrine of Discovery was the church in Europe signaling to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever land you find, not ruled by Christian rulers, those people are less than human and the land's yours for the taking. Not at all what Jesus and Paul were thinking. The church's doctrine of discovery quite literally gave ecclesiastical, sorry, ecclesial authorization for European nations to colonize the continents of North Africa, America, Asia, and eventually the Pacific, and enslave their people. Yeah, that's easily justified if you don't think they're really human or certainly not fully human. This was not the good news announced by Jesus in the Nazareth Manifesto, the good news to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And 182 years ago, precisely at the ends of the earth, a treaty would be signed between an occupying nation and the people who settled there first. A treaty deftly brokered by Christian missionaries, a treaty meant to eliminate hostilities and tensions between British settlers and the people who already lived there. Now, as you all know, the treaty was written in English and Maori with the help of Christian ministry, uh, missionaries who, like Paul, had immersed themselves in the language and cultures of foreign lands to bring them the good news. The English text guarantees protection of Maori interests from encroaching British settlers while allowing settlement to proceed and establishes a government to maintain peace and order. The Maori text suggests the main purpose of the settler's queen was to provide a government while securing rangatiratanga, Maori autonomy and authority over their own area and land ownership as long as they wished to retain it. Peace and well-being was to be assured for all parties. The more optimistic of the missionaries hoped perhaps Aotearoa New Zealand could even become a model for the kingdom of God proclaimed by Jesus Christ. Well, that was 1840. In 1866, without warning or consultation with any tribe in the Bay of Plenty, the British crown confiscated all the land around Whakatane, inland from the coast, 
for 10 kilometres. All the land. Now, while they did this to punish another tribe, half the best land of the Tuvalu people was also seized. Now, you may not know this, but Tuhoi are the tribe with whom the Presbyterian Church of Aotearoa, New Zealand, has its primary mission partnership. None of this land was ever returned. This transgression against their mana and dignity would embed itself into the consciousness of the Tuhoi people and gave rise to people like uh, Tamaiti and his protest. It's been an ongoing thing. The loss of half their finest land had devastating consequences on their well-being, and some Māori did retaliate against the confiscation, so the Crown sent in troops to arrest the ringleaders and restore peace, and in the chaos of the fighting, women and children were killed, homes and crops and taonga were destroyed. Yet, somehow, the good news taught by Jesus of Nazareth finds its way to the mountains of the Yorohuera, and to the ears of the Tuhoi people. In 1887, a young Rua joins a shearing gang on the East Coast. During his time, he studies, time off, I guess, he, he studies the Bible and develops a strong sense of prophetic vocation. Returning home, Rua forms a self-sufficient Christian community at Mongapahatu, which he calls the new Jerusalem. Eventually, his followers number almost a thousand. Ruo was one of a number of Maori prophets in this messianic movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And Ruo Kenana set about deliberately to usher in the reign of God of love among the people of the Urawera. Many commentators say he owed his influence to the great skill with which he applied the teaching of Jesus to the daily lives of his followers. You see, inspired by Jesus' good news, Rua's community, like Tefiti's in Taranaki, was steadfastly non-violent and shared all their possessions in common, as did the early church. The few Europeans willing to risk the tough journey inland to Rua's mountain settlement would praise the enthusiasm of the faithful people Rua was leading towards an enlightened and equitable life on ancestral Tuhoi lands. But alas, it seems that Rua allowed the gospel to influence his politics a step too far for the crown to tolerate. During World War I, Rua tried to keep his people out of mil military service, holding to the beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. Rua insisted it was immoral to fight for a Pākehā king and country who carried out so much injustice against Māori. Rua was charged with sedition for his gospel commitment to non-violence, and this gave the Crown the excuse they needed, not only to arrest Rua, but to raid his community. Yet while he was imprisoned in Otago, others committed to Jesus' good news weren't deterred by the criminal branding of the Tuhoi people and their leader, nor were they put off by the isolation of their settlements. Like Paul, these missionaries became slaves to all in their service of the good news. Chief among them was the deaconess, Sister Annie Henry, who went into that area 
as a teacher. And she had a contemporary, the Reverend John Lawton, widely known as Horney. Together they shared the load of teaching and pastoring across the Uruwera and into the Taupo region. Horney Lawton became a recognised scholar of the Maori language and played a major part in revising the Maori translation of the Bible. By the way, even to this day, most Tuhoi people are first language Maori speakers. When Rua Kenano was released from prison, a mutual trust and friendship formed between these two men. Together they developed a concept of unity based on the belief that one God was the authority for all people. Their relationship forged an ongoing connection between the Presbyterian Church and Rua's Church. And it's interesting that just yesterday, Otago University noted that one of its theology lecturers, the Reverend Dr. Wayne Takawa, with Tuhoi heritage and past moderator of our Maori Synod, had been involved with the Bible Society in the development of a revised interlinear Maori-English Bible, which they launched as part of his summer lectures on Christian ministry in the Maori world. Well, how are we doing, do you think, as a nation? Was the Treaty of Waitangi between equal or between conqueror and conquered? You know, it's only eight years ago that the grievances of the Tuhoi people were finally acknowledged by the Crown and their claim for justice under the treaty to be recognised. That's a wait of 148 years. What now is our part in bringing about the reign of a loving God in our land? How can we be signs of the good news in our speech and in our actions, in our family, in our church, in our community and in our world? I'm not going to try to answer those questions. I'm leaving them with you. But surely it's an ongoing task.